All right, good morning. Welcome to the inaugural Geneva Visiting Artists and Lecture Series event for the academic year 2018. My name is Jeff Cole, and I direct the Crossroads Office, which coordinates the GVALS events. Uh, before I forget, those of you who are here for PolySci 352, Dr. Nykirk is sitting over to your left. And I'm sorry, and any other of his classes as well, all 50 of them. Um, so uh, you should see him before you leave to demonstrate that you are here. Uh, we have a full slate of programming this year, and we're excited about the range of speakers and events that we'll be hosting between now and the end of the semester. And uh, we hope that you'll join us. We do have a handout, two-sided handout, one, for, one side for fall, the other side for spring. And I encourage you to pick up one of these before you leave. We're going to have them over here uh, near the table. But today's event is uh, scheduled to coincide with Geneva College's observation of Constitution Day. On September 17, 1787, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia across the state for the last time to, to sign the document that they had just created. The original document, which was comprised of about 4,500 words, serves as the foundation for our government and is the oldest of any national constitution. It is the U.S. Constitution that binds a diverse collection of people in 50 states together. Our Constitution places the government's power in the hands of the citizens, in our hands. It limits the power of the government and establishes a system of checks and balances. Enshrined in our Constitution is the principle that government exists to protect the rights of all citizens and has no legitimate power to deprive any citizen or class of citizen of their rights without due process of law. It's in the Constitution that we find the, uh, the section that's known as the Establishment Clause, um, and the it's the guarantee that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And this is a principle that Geneva College prizes. So this morning, it's my pleasure to welcome Adam Seagrave to Geneva for the 2018 Constitution Day Lecture. Dr. Seagrave is Associate Director of the School of Economic, Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership and the Associate Director of the Center for Political Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. He earned his undergraduate degree from Thomas Aquinas College and his PhD from the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Seagrave is the author of three books and many articles on political philosophy and American political thought. Most recently, he published The Accessible Federalist, a collection of 16 key Federalist papers in language adapted for a modern audience. Among his current projects is an initiative called Race and the American Story. He is also the managing editor of the academic journal American Political Thought, the founding editor of the online journal Starting Points, and the associate editor of the undergraduate online journal Compass. Please welcome Dr. Adam Seagrave to Geneva College. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Um, as uh, Dr. Cole said, this week we're celebrating Constitution Day, right? Uh, the day on, uh, in September, September 17th to be exact, 1787. 
when 39 of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia signed the Constitution. Uh, but the official name of the Day of Commemoration is actually not just Constitution Day, uh, but Constitution Day and Citizenship Day. Constitution Day and Citizenship Day. Uh, and this is a strange pairing in one way because citizenship is nowhere explicitly defined in the original Constitution. We don't get that until the 14th Amendment. Uh, but in another way, it's an eminently fitting pairing because the opening words of the Constitution, we the people, are a powerful and profound expression of citizenship in the political union formed by the Constitution, and a much better uh, expression of citizenship than any formal definition could be. Citizenship, or belonging to a political society as a result of one's actual consent, is really the very core of the Constitution considered as a whole. The reason we have a written Constitution in the first place is because of citizenship properly understood. The existence of a we the people necessitated, in the founders' minds, the existence of a written constitution to serve as an expression of their political union and to render the political authority exercised by this union legitimate. The constitution didn't define citizenship because, in a way, citizenship preceded it, both in the concrete form of state citizenship and in the more abstract Lincolnian form symbolized by the we who hold these truths to be self-evident in the Declaration of Independence. The entire constitutional edifice, from the drama and intrigue of the Philadelphia Convention, with its great debates and mythical figures, including the Broadway star Alexander Hamilton, to the layers upon layers of accumulated constitutional law delivered by the Supreme Court, rests like a tiny volcanic island atop the primeval magma of American citizenship. It has often been said that a republic like ours requires citizens of a certain character or virtue, but I mean more than this here. Not only is a certain quality of citizen required by a democratic republic, but the kind of democratic republic that the United States is, especially with its written constitution, follows directly from the centrality of a particular idea of citizenship to institutional design and justification. Because the American idea of citizenship was based on the idea of individual consent to political authority, the Constitution had to be written down. It had to tie all of the institutions of government to the people in some way, and it had to be ratified by the people. The Constitution didn't define citizenship because political belonging was conceived to be something deeper and more fundamental than having a passport with a particular seal on it, or even than having the ability to vote in elections. All of this serves as my rationalization for the fact that I propose to talk more about citizenship in the remainder of my remarks than about the Constitution directly. Uh, in particular, I want to focus on two questions. First, why is American citizenship broken? And the second, how can we fix it? So let's start with the first question. Why is American citizenship broken today? My wife jokes that my answer to everything is original sin. Why do we trip and fall? Original sin. Why do bad things happen to good people? Original sin. Why are brownies bad for you? Original sin. Why are the Kardashians famous? Original sin. <laughs> but this isn't the usual answer that people give regarding the crisis of American citizenship today. People might point to political apathy, as evidenced by low voter turnout and low levels of political engagement generally. They might point to the failure of schools, 
both at the primary and secondary levels and in higher education, to properly educate children and young adults in the fundamentals of what it means to be an American citizen and how to exercise one's citizenship. They might also bemoan political polarization, the breakdown of civic friendship, and the inability to either forge consensus or disagree respectfully and civilly with others. None of these answers are wrong, but none are as right as my answer to everything, original sin. So why do I say this? The original sin was pride, the kind of excessively narrow-minded self-love that turns exclusively inward and disregards everything beyond oneself as either inferior or unimportant. Pride fosters apathy toward broader concerns, ignorance of one's surroundings, and discord with others. In other words, all of the things people point to as what's wrong with American citizenship today. If I were a real scientist, I would say that pride is the variable or hypothesis that explains the widest range of phenomena relating to the breakdown of American citizenship. And I'm far from the first to give this answer. The first recorded speech delivered by a European colonist in North America, if a speech delivered on a boat counts, was the one given by John Winthrop to a group of Puritans on board the Arbella in 1630. In this speech, Winthrop expressed his fundamental misgiving about the possibility of a healthy, functioning democratic society. This misgiving stemmed from his belief in the effects of original sin. According to Winthrop, the original sin that rent Adam from his creator rent all his posterity also one from another, with the result that human beings now naturally tend to separate rather than come together, to disagree rather than to agree, to come into conflict rather than to cooperate. This is not only a spiritual problem or a social problem, but a serious political problem as well. As Thomas Hobbes helps us to see, Isolated, competing, and conflicting individuals tend to lead lives that are nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Unless they set up a political power strong enough to suppress discord and force unity through sheer might. The direct political consequence of individual isolation is autocracy, dictatorship, or tyranny. Thomas Paine draws this connection in common sense when he says that, quote, the palaces of kings are built on the ruins of the bowers of paradise. That's a good quote to keep in mind. The palaces of kings are built on the ruins of the bowers of paradise, squarely attributing the existence of absolute monarchies to the baneful effects of original sin on the human potential for living in harmony and exercising self-government. For pain, all government is in some way a badge of lost innocence or the result of the fall, but monarchy is particularly well-suited to the fallen human condition. We need government because we can't get along with each other otherwise. And the less we get along with each other otherwise, the more government we need. The individual isolation symbolized or brought about by original sin provides a wide open door to absolute political power. And people living under absolute political power aren't citizens, they're subjects. It would seem then that subjection rather than citizenship is the more normal or natural political condition for human beings, once we consider the pridefulness of fallen human beings. And of course, if we look at history, this is borne out clearly. Free government still today is a blip, an aberration in human history. And if subjection is the default and citizenship the exception, our constitution, which depends upon citizenship for its rationale, its moral authority, and its practical relevance seems doomed to fail. 
This line of reasoning is what led the American founders to speak of the existence of the American political union as, a, as an experiment. It was an experiment in self-government to see if political self-government would work in this case, even though it had rarely existed and it invariably failed before. To put this in perspective and to use an analogy that the founders themselves would have appreciated, adopting the American Constitution was like throwing a rock in the air and hoping it wouldn't fall. So my answer to the first question is basically that, surprise, surprise, the rock has fallen. American citizenship is broken because human nature is more broken than not. In Madison's terms in Federalist 55, the degree of depravity in human nature is in fact somewhat greater than the degree of goodness in it. And we are seeing the effects of this imbalance in our recent civic crises just as we have at other times in the American past. This answer is similar in certain respects to the answer given recently by Notre Dame professor Patrick Deneen in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, and also that given by Rod Dreher in The Benedict Option. Both of these answers, though, suggest there is something particularly bad about Western liberal democratic society or about American society in particular. It was the American focus on individual rights that, over time, gave rise to the individualistic, selfish, narcissistic society that we see today. This seems to me, though, to transfer too much explanatory weight away from human nature, pure and simple. Yes, certain ideas and ways of thinking about the world powerfully influence human behavior and political societies over time, but they don't exert this influence in spite of or apart from human nature. Elements of human nature are brought out or highlighted by different ways of thinking and different cultures. Western liberal democracy, and particularly American liberal democracy, does indeed bring out and encourage manifestations of the original sin of pride in a particular way. It democratizes and individualizes pride, we might say, spreading it far and wide and separating it from any possible limiting source in the wider society. But for all this, it would be absurd to suggest that American society or modern societies or Western societies are the only societies in which fallen human nature rears its ugly head. It is only more obvious in the American case because of the fact that American politics has always been built more directly on human nature, both in theory and in practice, than any other political society in history. With no real prehistory or traditional culture to cover over and obscure human liberty and equality, no sort of clothing for human nature. American political history has been like a magnifying glass on human nature, both good and bad. And so I maintain against those in the line of Deneen and Dreher that what's wrong with American citizenship today doesn't have to do particularly with America or with modernity or with Western culture, but rather with fallen human nature. This answer might seem too simple, easy, and dismissive. The problem with recent American politics is that we're human, and there's no fixing that. Can't we make some headway in increasing citizen engagement, in promoting civics literacy, or in fostering friendly civil dialogue, even among prideful and otherwise imperfect human beings? One might point to Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, author of the greatest book on American politics ever written, for a source of hope here. Tocqueville thought that individualism, his word for prideful self-centeredness, could be transformed through active political participation, particularly at the local level, into what he called self-interest rightly understood. Although politics might often seem far removed from individual citizens, politics at the local level could be different. 
When a proposal arises to build a road through someone's backyard, for example, that person is led by her own self-interest to interact politically with her fellow citizens. When the situation is repeated in various ways over time, that person develops a habit of participating in politics, making connections with fellow citizens, engaging in the democratic political process, and caring about the common good of the community. In this way, individualism could be combated by democratic self-government at the local level of the township, and good American citizens with civic virtue would be fostered through this process. Tocqueville was under no illusions, though, that these good citizens would be good people. As Aristotle says, a good man and a good citizen are not always the same thing. And Tocqueville acknowledged that this mismatch would occur in American society, even if it was successful in fighting individualism and producing good citizens through local political participation. Self-interest rightly understood is still self-interest and not genuine altruism or caring about another person for his or her own sake. As Adam Smith, the great theorist of the free market, puts it, Quote, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. End quote. Materialism goes along with individualism because the individual is material and constantly needs material things to stay comfortable. A constant focus on material comfort, though, tends to crowd out a concern for the immaterial things that we might call the higher things. Tocqueville dwells on this difference in democracy in America, elaborating on the mediocrity of American society, both in the areas of arts and culture and in the area of virtue. Just as American society, with its distinctive embodiment of equality, doesn't encourage the conditions for high artistic achievement, so it doesn't encourage the conditions for lofty examples of human virtue. Instead of da Vinci and Michelangelo, we have Walmart. And instead of Joan of Arc or Don Quixote, we have Walmart cashiers. And this isn't necessarily a terrible thing. Maybe we should trade the inequality and injustice of the societies that have produced great art, culture, and examples of virtue for the equality and fairness of a society that is more mediocre. The problem with this egalitarian utopia of the Walmart society, though, which Tocqueville acknowledges in his pessimistic conclusions to each volume of Democracy in America, is that it doesn't appear sustainable. This is a crucial point that runs throughout Tocqueville's analysis of American society. Tocqueville thinks that early Americans have discovered the best possible way to sustain a democratic society through vibrant local township government where everyone participates on an equal footing, everyone has a say in government, and everyone is led to care about the common good by his enlightened self-interest. Combine this with the right kind of federalism and a well-designed national constitution, which the Americans have, and the good citizenship and healthy self-government at the local level will trickle up all the way to the national level. So instead of trickle-down economics, Tocqueville believed in trickle-up politics. This is the way to make democratic society successful. In the end, though, it's not enough. The best possible solution to the potential pathologies of democratic society has had its best possible trial run in the U.S. And according to Tocqueville, in the 1830s, one could already see that it was starting to fail. First, there's the fact that all of the American freedom and equality that Tocqueville found so attractive was built, as he explains, only with the aid of tyranny over both the Native American and African American peoples. Equality and justice for American citizens seem to depend upon inequality and injustice toward non-citizens. 
And these unequal and unjust relationships would, he thought, particularly in the case of African-American slavery, lead to the demise of American society as he knew it. Secondly, Tocqueville feared that the conditions of freedom and equality of thought and opinion had led paradoxically to a despotism of the public orthodoxy and a constriction of open discussion and debate. After praising the Americans for the better part of hundreds of pages, Tocqueville near the end says that there is no country in the world where there is less freedom of thought and discussion than in the U.S. at his time. According to Tocqueville's analysis, the vacuum of authority telling people what to think leads inexorably to the power of the majority over the individual. If everyone is equal, what my two friends think seems twice as likely to be right as what I think. And the power of the majority and its opinion is greater even than the power of old-time tyrants and despots because of its ability to insinuate itself into the very mind and soul of the individual, controlling thought and behavior in a much more complete way than any single tyrant could. Thirdly, in addition to this form of tyranny of the majority, Tocqueville foresaw the possibility of an emergent tyranny of the minority with the growth of manufacturing and capital in the 19th century. Tocqueville feared that this kind of narrowing of the mind combined with extreme poverty that was faced by factory workers would be detrimental to democratic Republican citizenship. Such individuals could not be active, engaged, empowered, self-governing citizens. They, they were dependent and ripe for political domination. Although Tocqueville acknowledged that this wasn't a widespread problem in his time, he warned that, quote, the friends of democracy should keep their eyes anxiously fixed in this direction, for if ever a permanent inequality of conditions and aristocracy again penetrate into the world, it may be predicted that this is the channel by which they will enter, end quote. Have some water here. So Tocqueville thought that the Americans had found out the only way to make democratic society also a good and healthy one, namely by fostering active political participation at the local level, which would divert self-interest away from harmful pride and towards the beneficial self-interest rightly understood. But he also thought that the single most promising prospect for a successful democracy, which he saw in the U.S., had already shown signs of failure and would likely fail in further ways in the future. If anyone could be counted on to make the best possible case for the beneficial effects of citizen engagement, informed voters, and well-constructed institutions for sustaining a healthy liberal democracy, it would be Tocqueville. He gives us the best reasons and the most persuasive arguments for hoping that we can bring about positive changes for democratic citizenship and democratic societies through civic engagement, that the power to effect change lies with us. But then he pulls the rug out from under us and says that American democracy will likely fail anyway. Tocqueville's account confirms, in other words, my answer to the first question. American citizenship is broken not because of a lack of citizen engagement, voter apathy, or institutional failure. It is broken because human nature is broken. Luckily, though, this isn't Tocqueville's only line of argument in democracy in America. While confirming our depressing answer to the first question, he also gives us a solid lead in addressing the second question of how we can fix American citizenship and thereby the Constitution that rests on top of it. Tocqueville is most known for focusing his attention on two different sources for the surprising early success of American democracy. The first is what I've been talking about so far, local self-government in the township, 
And the second is religion, specifically Christianity. Local self-government in the township is essentially the best way in which we human beings living in community can work to overcome the habitual pride that comes from our broken human nature. As I've argued along with Tocqueville, this way alone is ultimately doomed to failure. And this is where religion comes in. If we human beings simply can't do it on our own, then as the German philosopher Martin Heidegger famously said, only a god can save us. Tocqueville is sometimes criticized by religious believers because of his focus on the political utility of religion for democracies. Tocqueville calls religion the first of the Americans' political institutions and the most important one for sustaining American democracy. Tocqueville is mostly interested in religion as a remedy for political ills, particularly democratic ills. But this is really, as I have argued, a direct consequence of the seriousness of the political problem facing democratic citizenship. If the problem is original sin or the brokenness of human nature, the only possible solution is redemption, or the fixing of human nature by the only guy who can fix it. Religion is only a political solution because sin is a political problem. And here I don't mean all sin, but particularly the original sin of pride. But Tocqueville was nevertheless a staunch advocate of the separation of church and state. And in this, I completely agree with him. The way in which religion can fix American citizenship is not directly through the coercive arm of politics, but through its influence on the people, the human beings, in politics. And this includes not only politicians and government officials, but all American citizens, assuming we live under a government by the people. Right? So we're all in politics, not just the people in politics. And we've seen the transformative effect religion can have on American politics through the American people themselves at crucial moments in our past. The first Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s was a major catalyst for the development of American revolutionary ideas. Theological convictions about the rights and liberties of Protestants were fused with philosophical convictions about the rights and liberties of human beings. Luther was fused with Locke. And the result was an irresistible political conviction about the rights and liberties of citizens living under government. Elisha Williams, one of the most prominent and important figures of the time, delivered a famous sermon in 1744 entitled The Essential Rights and Liberties of Protestants, in which the powerful political consequences of religious convictions were abundant, made abundantly clear. As many scholars of the American Revolution have shown, this event simply would not have happened as it did without the powerful influence of American religious belief. The Second Great Awakening in the 19th century contributed then to the next crucial development in American history, the rise of the abolition movement, which would reach its conclusion ultimately in the Civil War, the, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the 13th Amendment. Abolition leaders such as William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass persistently blended political arguments for abolishing slavery, both with philosophical arguments about natural rights and with theological arguments about human dignity and Christian brotherhood. Frederick Douglass goes so far as to charge the continuance of slavery directly to the failure of Christian church organizations to do as much as they could. He says, quote, let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical, missionary, Bible, and tract associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding, and the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds, end quote. 
Where the mainstream church organizations failed, though, individuals and groups of passionate believers ultimately succeeded. Religious belief had a similar effect 100 years later during the Civil Rights Movement under the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. Although American church organizations were divided and reluctant as they had been in the 1840s and 50s to throw their weight behind the cause of racial justice, it was an individual Baptist minister who inspired dramatic political change by building on profound religious conviction. The best example of this is Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail which was written to a group of fellow Christian clergymen who would ask King to be more patient and work through regular political channels rather than engage in civil disobedience. King's response was a justification for civil disobedience that relied directly on his religious belief. In almost every speech he ever gave, Dr. King followed people like Frederick Douglass and Elisha Williams in reaching all the way down through political partisanship and philosophical convictions to the bedrock of religious conviction and anchoring his arguments there. We've seen clearly the ways in which religion can fix citizenship, can inspire individual American citizens to care about politics, to actively engage in politics through widespread participation, and to bring about social change in the direction of deliberate agreement about justice. Is this still possible, though, in our current American political climate? Everyone likes to cite the recent statistics about the decline of religiosity and the rise of atheism in the US as an argument either for despair or for hope. And the recent social justice movements, from the pro-life movement to the movements for LGBT rights and Black Lives Matter, have for various reasons diverged from the previous pattern of religious awakening leading to renewed civic engagement and consensus-based social change. My own opinion is again the same as Tocqueville's on this. Setting aside the matter of ultimate religious truth, religious belief has powerful and deep roots in human nature. Which means that even if unbelief grows or gains ascendancy at certain times and places, there will always be a receptivity to religious awakening or revivalism in human societies. Which takes me to the practical components of my answer to the second question about American citizenship. If American citizenship is broken because of the brokenness of human nature, and if only a God can save us, what does that look like in practice? How can we address a pressing political problem, broken citizenship, with a religious remedy without violating the principle of separation of church and state? Religious awakenings are always fueled by great preaching that reaches a wide audience across a large area. This is how Christianity in particular has exerted its influence on American political thought and history. What is needed now then is for great preachers to emerge and have access to large audiences spread throughout the country. Events centered around great preaching need to be organized frequently and they need to travel from place to place around the country, reaching diverse audiences and connecting with them in direct ways. This needs to happen organically, ecumenically, and also interreligiously. People belong to particular faiths and denominations, and they believe and worship accordingly. But there's nothing that precludes a Lutheran from attending a sermon delivered by an Episcopalian, a Baptist, a Catholic, or a Muslim, and vice versa. The best preachers of every faith should be enabled to have maximal effect throughout American society beyond their particular congregations. This is the practical goal. How should we go about trying to achieve this goal? Achieving the goal would involve nationwide coordination among the leaderships of many different faiths. 
This coordination would ensure that organic developments at the local grassroots level can be effectively magnified and given appropriate resources and encouragement they need to grow and succeed. Such coordination and encouragement should moreover be provided for politically, which will immediately raise alarm bells about freedom of conscience and separation of church and state in the minds of many. For a while now, there's been an office in the White House devoted to fostering partnerships between faith-based organizations that provide social services and the federal government, including the allocation of federal funds to such organizations. It was started under George W. in 2001 and has been continued with some modification, both by Obama and most recently by Trump. This office could serve as a forum or meeting place for religious leaders as well as lay experts and scholars to discuss and coordinate efforts to respectively identify their most effective preachers, provide them with organizational and logistical assistance, and give them a platform to reach audiences well beyond their congregations and even their particular faiths. The rationale for providing government assistance to jumpstart a new religious awakening would be the following. Under this existing policy in place since 2001, establishing the White House Office for Cooperation with Faith-Based Organizations, such organizations have been directly supported by the federal government as providers of a wide array of, of social services. The language in the most recent executive order issued by Trump in May of this year includes under these social services, quote, poverty alleviation, religious liberty, strengthening marriage and family, education, solutions for substance abuse and addiction, crime prevention and reduction, prisoner reentry, and health and humanitarian services, end quote. Fixing American citizenship is certainly an important social service on par with these others. <coughs> So long as faith-based organizations devoted to providing great preachers with an effective platform are not selectively supported, that is, no one faith or denomination is favored, and so long as political support is understood to be narrowly tailored to the social services dimension of the faith-based organization rather than the theological dimension, such coordination and support by an executive branch office would seem to be in line with existing First Amendment law. Given that good citizenship must stand as one of the few most important or compelling interests of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and if I'm right that the core problem with American citizenship can only be addressed by divine intervention, essentially, the least we can do politically is open up American society to the possibility of religious awakening and let the preachers of all faiths and denominations do the rest. This is how we can begin to fix American citizenship. And fixing American citizenship is the best way to ensure the survival and proper working of the American Constitution. Our Constitution is built on human nature, both its depravity and its goodness. The depravity we can count on, the goodness we have to actively work to foster and encourage. If we can effectively enlist the power, the inspirational power of our religious leaders and preachers and open American political life up to the higher, more divine things, we can give our Constitution the kinds of citizens it will need to survive the 21st century and beyond. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions, uh, I suppose, on any range of topics from the political philosophy of Tocqueville to the popularity of the Kardashians. Um, are you prepared to answer questions about that? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I catch some of it every now and then, okay. so maybe, yeah. All right. So what questions do you have? 
Spellbound. Oh, take, take a little time. Yeah. yeah. One over here. Um, so you have mentioned identifying the most effective creatures. I don't know if you explicitly stated the process by which you identify them, but how would you go about doing that to avoid people claiming discrimination? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, what, I mean, what I briefly mentioned, and, you know, this is a very, of course, tentative proposal, but uh, what I briefly mentioned would be, of course, that the religious leaders, organizations, or representatives themselves would, it would be on them to identify uh, the, their most effective preachers in whatever way they, they chose to do so. Um, and so it, it's true you run into issues there of, you know, these preachers who are handpicked in discriminatory ways perhaps by religious leaders. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if there's any getting around doing it that way, any way of getting around, you know, that. So it would seem to me that that would be the, um, possibly the best practical way to do it, to say, all right, you religious group, you know, go, you know, identify your best preachers however you want to do it, um, and encourage them however you think best. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Uh, how would you go about avoiding this wide-scale religious cooperation either devolving into a bunch of separate efforts or melding into a next to useless ecumenism? Yeah, good good question. So right, because obviously there are important differences between different faiths, right? Um, so yeah, how do you avoid uh, it, them working against each other in various ways or right, being just sort of empty and not accomplishing anything because there's so many differences between different faiths right, and how they would go about this? Um, yeah, so that, that's a, an excellent question. I think, so um, here again, Tocqueville gives, I think, some help in terms of, of seeing how the accumulated impact of different, of very different faiths could still be um, in one direction, possibly, or in a positive direction. So uh, he points to things like a belief in the immortality of the soul, um, a, uh, a counteracting materialism, right? That there are some, there are certain, uh, I guess, um, elements uh, that are common to many different faiths, if not all of them, but at least many. Uh, generally in the direction of kind of refocusing people away from the here and now and from material uh, material comfort and things like that and towards you know the community towards uh, immaterial things towards the afterlife towards kind of broader concerns um, and so I, I do think that that um, that there, even though faiths differ in many ways and believe different things that there are enough common elements to most, if not all, faiths that would have a kind of cumulative political effect, right? So again, it's, I mean, it would be, you know, we're not talking about theological agreement, right? We're talking about a, a, a political disposition that would be encouraged by this. So, but I think that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What you say that due to human nature, uh, even with this process of religion, America, the American Constitution still do inevitably fail? Um, yeah, do I think the American Constitution is still doomed and will inevitably fail even if we pursue something, you know, if we try to jumpstart a religious awakening of some kind? Um, well, I mean, I think, um, I think there are grounds for hope. So, as I said, I mean, I, I guess... Um, 
I tended to, to emphasize the depravity part of human nature, right, and that we're more bad than good, um, which may be true on balance to some extent, but there's still a lot of good in human nature, and so I think that, um, that, there, that gives us grounds for hope that we can uh, build a successful democratic society on the good elements of human nature. Um, so I, I think there, there are grounds for hope. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, let's see in the back. Yeah. Um, so, at some point you mentioned that sort of what we need is a God to save us. We need divine intervention. So tying that into what you're saying about preaching, um, obviously all we can do is sow. The Holy Spirit's what makes it grow. Mm-hmm. But you've also talked about the effective platform, and it sounds more like a philosophical shift than it is theological. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, a philosophical shift more than theological, right? Um, yeah, so so you mean something more like a, as I think I refer to it as like a dispositional shift that people's dispositions might change or something like that? Um, or sort of your response to the last question, talking about how these things, these interfaith things, mm-hmm. um, getting back to that root. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you tie that? in with a reconciliation of human nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I think, yeah, as you say, I mean, it's not as if we can, you know, like, force God's hand and say, here, come fix American politics, right? I mean, um, so, you know, uh, so we're limited in that way. But I think the way the way I'm thinking about it is in terms of an openness, right? So just sort of a general openness that it doesn't have to be even in any particular concrete direction, even theologically, it doesn't have, you know, there can be different faiths, right? But just a general openness to the two higher things, right? To the divine in, in various forms. Even that, I think already, you know, if it really took the form of a genuine openness that that people were inspired and energized by, even that I think would have a, a significant political effect. Uh, at least that's that's my hunch. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah. Um, earlier, you mentioned the value of trickle-up politics through local involvement, and how would you respond to the critique of those who would suggest that? a nationwide preaching tour by famous preachers would tend to pull people away from involvement in the local community rather than push them towards that local community. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point, right. Yeah, right, so if you're following traveling preachers around, how are you engaging in local political participation, right? Um, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, I think... I think to some extent what you would hope would happen would be that um, people who are changed in some way or inspired by uh, the effects of these preachers or this preaching, right, um, that they would then when they return home, right, when they are part of their their communities, um, that they would be inspired to be different kinds of citizens than they were before. because you're right, obviously, it's a, there is a sort of a certain uh, element of competition there. Um, uh, but I guess when you think about great awakenings and, and traveling preachers and things like that, um, that tends to be a you know a movement that happens for a while, right? And people get excited and changed by, and then it kind of takes a break, right? Um, 
And then the idea would be at that break time, you know, people would be better citizens as a result of that inspiration and experience. Um, um, so at least that's you know that's one one way of trying to address that question. But I think you're right that that's a good practical question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said if we allow religion into politics and public, you will be broken human nature. Mm -hmm. According to history, if we allow that to happen, the church will start ruling government again. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that will happen? Yeah, right. So that's that's kind of the elephant in the room question. I mean, that's that's a good point, right? Isn't haven't we seen in history what happens when when we uh, try to open up politics to religion, right? Um, yeah. So and that is where it gets tricky. I mean, and possibly volatile and dangerous because you're right. Um, so the key has to be the principle of separation of church and state. Still, right? So we have to make sure that that, that is a is a is a principle that's upheld. Um, and, you know, reading uh, Tocqueville, you know, he himself was very clear about that. I mean, he thought religion was really important for politics, but he said, absolutely, there should be a separation of church and state. In fact, at one point he says, Tocqueville says that um, he believes so strongly in the importance of religion for, for politics um, that he would rather chain priests in the sanctuary than allow them to leave it. Um, in other words, that he thinks keeping, keeping religion out of politics in sort of a, a concrete way is absolutely crucial to maintaining religion's important influence on politics, kind of paradoxically, right? So that when religion becomes directly involved in politics, it, it's bad for religion, it ruins religion, and of course it's bad for politics too. But um, So how would, how would uh, yeah, how can you maintain that openness without leading to uh, the you know, the capture of politics by religion. I think part of that might get to the, uh, might relate to the wide range of different faiths that we have in this country, right? That there, there isn't, um, you know, in sects within Christianity, for example, too. I mean, there isn't any one faith that would be an obvious candidate to, um, to dominate the others through a sort of this sort of awakening. Um, and, and capture the political process. So, so I think practically, I think that we're helped by that. So if it's an ecumenical and interfaith kind of thing, uh, that would help be a safeguard against that. Um, and uh, which actually in the past, religious awakenings tend to be anyways, right? They tend to not be um, aligned with, uh, with the organizational part of, ch of churches, right? It tends to be more informal. Anyways, but so that, 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 yeah, so I might point to those things, but you're right, that's a major issue. You have follow up? Yeah. If Christianity gets involved with politics, that would cause other religions to be shut and pushed out of America or just American politics in general. Right. So that separation of church and state, I think, goes further than just one religion. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that um, I mean, that's why I would hope that this would be, you know, that, that other faiths could also be a part of, of this, right? So it wouldn't just be Christianity. And the influence that would be exercised on politics wouldn't be direct. Uh, it would be indirect, right? Um, yeah, good. Hey, you had a question? Oh, yeah, it was uh, based off of that, mm -hmm. that if we're doing it like this um, kind of league of religions, would you necessarily have within the Christian faith itself all of the uh, uh, like different churches like Catholic, uh, Anglican, mm -hmm. and, uh, like non-denominational or just have 
representatives of just the Christian faith, Muslim faith, instead of having all these sacks being um, if if that they'll just lead too many too many Christian dominant parties involved where it's just it pushes out all the other religions. And then uh that primarily throughout history, um, all of our presidents have been Christian, so wouldn't they just tend to lean towards um these other Christian thoughts because of uh, just religious relations and grudges from the past? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so how, how would you ensure that this doesn't become a Christian-dominated um, sort of thing? And uh, would, could that, again, be detrimental to people of other faiths, right? Um, uh, so as far as I know, the, so the existing office in the White House that deals with faith-based organizations, um, I don't think they, they deal only with Christian organizations. Um, um, and if they do, I mean, that would be something that you could you could try to fix, right? So you could uh, try to encourage this sort of nationwide coordination among not only different Christian leaders, but also, um, you know, Muslim leaders and, um, you know, Jewish leaders. I mean, every, you know, people of, of all sorts of different faiths, right? Um, as wide as you could, I guess, as you could get it uh, to a certain extent, right? Include as many different faiths as you can talking to each other, coordinating with each other to some extent, right? Um, and as I said, too, I mean, I, I think it would be helpful if, if um, it were the kind of thing where sometimes a Christian would find it interesting or enlightening to go to a, a you know, a, a Muslim giving a sermon, you know, somewhere. Um, you know, that that would be something people might do out of interest, curiosity, whatever, and that would be good. Um, so, I, yeah, so I think that that, that, that would be a danger, but hopefully, it, you know, there might be practical ways to work around that. Yeah. Thank you very much for your questions. Please join me in thanking Dr. Seagrave for being with us today. <laughs>